good morning, good afternoon, good evening. What is up, everyone? I'm your host, Charlie Schrem, and you're listening and watching another epic episode of Untold Stories, where together for the past three years, we've been diving deep with some of crypto's most influential leaders, my friends, family, uh, politicians, Bitcoin OGs, those who have just joined the industry and are CEOs of these big companies and sometimes can't even explain a blockchain, but we help them do it. Uh, so truly understand how this movement came to be and where we are right now and uh, where we're going to be going in the future. Um, a few months ago, I had the pleasure of speaking at, at Consensus that was run by Coindesk, and I got to catch up with my old friend, Adam B. Levine, who's joining us on the show today. Uh, and at that conference, he led um, a panel, and we re we replayed this, this, this panel on the show, and I was really excited to be able to have Adam come on the show and do a much longer episode, because we've known each other since at least 2013, 2014, like, yeah, at least... One of the first people that I met in the space, Adam, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you very much, Charlie. You know, I think we actually knew each other before I was using my real name back when I was using mind to matter in the, uh, Oh yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, I wrote my first article about, uh, about Bitcoin, uh, off of entirely IRC, um, uh, interviews with people after the first big run up to, I think it was like $10 or something like that. Uh, I don't remember the exact date on it, but it was, would have been uh, maybe 20, 2012, something like that. Uh, but basically, I wrote an article called uh, Bitcoin or the New Renaissance, How Bitcoin Millionaires Will Change the World. And it was all of these kind of interviews with all these people who I was very pleasantly surprised were so different than the other rich people who I had ever talked to before because they had sort of fallen into this, you know, kind of tech adopter early windfall position. But yeah, no. The, the space is just, it's incredible to think about what's happened over the last 10 years. And it's wild to think that it has been 10 years because it has gone by so fast. Yeah, it's, I can't believe, I guess because I was only in my early 20s when I first got into it. I didn't, like yourself, we were very young and I didn't capture, like maybe as some of the older folks did that were in the space, there weren't many, but I didn't like fully capture how powerful and how like, you know, that those early days, that's going to be like the pivotal moment for the rest of our lives. We're going to look back and I do as watershed moments of my life where I had to make like, you know, you look back at, at your at your life and you look back at certain decisions that you made, certain moments in time where whether you knew they were pivotal moments or didn't know they were pivotal moments ended up being those like hyper pivotal moments. Yeah, 100 um, percent. You know, when I uh, when I first started doing stuff in crypto, I think I was 27, and then I was 28 when I uh, I was 28 when um, you know I came out uh, with my real name, and I felt like that was kind of important in the early days because we talked about this on stage because so few people were known by their real names, and there was just this like critical like okay, but what if it's all just one guy, right? Three guys are running all of Bitcoin, and it's just a giant sock puppet thing, right? Or you know, like all these people are like the biggest creeps ever. And, you know, we had seen that kind of from the, the early days. Um, the show that, uh, you know, was sort of the big deal in Bitcoin before we launched Let's Talk Bitcoin was the Bitcoin show. And there There's was Wagner. a lot of stuff. Yeah, I mean, like there was a lot of stuff that came out about that. It's like, OK, well, if these are the people who are out there representing the industry, representing what might be a really big deal, it would be good if there were some people out there who are a little less controversial. And for better or worse, I have big ideas, but I've always been a pretty boring guy as far as risks go. So <laughs> I, always, I always thought about that. And I thought about, you know, there were a lot of definitely people that 
were involved in a space that almost like we that had we were all a bunch of misfits. And I, it kind of brings me back to that, like Pirates of the Caribbean, like the first scene when they were asking Captain Jack Sparrow, like, why do you know your crew there? That guy's a that guy has a, a fight every night at the bar. That guy, you know, is laid on his he doesn't pay people back. That guy, you know, he's the meanest guy. He he beats his wife. And it's like all the well, not maybe not that, but it's all these different things. And um, you're like, why do you have him as your crew? And he's like, well, you know, we're a very unique ship or he said it in different words but that guy who you said you know it gets into a fight every night that guy can spat can spot land from 100 miles away and that guy can get a sail up as fast faster than anyone in this whole city so it's like you got to take the good and the bad um for what it is and maybe in other industries that are more mature they have the option but in the early bitcoin days we didn't have the option we were who we were and we take what we take and we get what we get yeah, you know, I, I think that's totally true. And I think it's even more true than that. You know, like Bitcoin, because it started as this thing about money, right? Because cryptocurrency started about money, it really influenced the types of people who were here and who were found it interesting at all. And there's this phenomenon in the early days that we noticed over and over again, which is that the, and this is not just true about Bitcoin, it's just true generally. But when you're talking about new technology, the people who are worst served or not served by the existing system are the people who are going to be the first adopters of the new system because they have no other option really. And they have little to lose, right? Because they're disenfranchised. So if you look at the kind of early people who are in Bitcoin, you had a couple of different classes of people. You had people who wanted to do stuff that just couldn't be done through the legal you know, monetary system. You had people who didn't like how money was run. You had people who were looking for better options from a commercial standpoint, uh, especially for cross-border stuff. And so there were all of these people who are what I would consider some of the smarter people because to be yeah. educated about currency is, a, is, is like a personal choice, right? Like nobody's going to teach you how money really works. You know, even if you go to college, you're going to learn something that probably is going to be wrong in practice. And so it's kind of this, it was this very self-selected group up front. And I think it really had a profound impact on the space and continues to today, even as we see that uh, diminish over time. We get a little bit deeper and I really want to talk about what the, the World Bank is doing and, you know, like, uh, gosh, what did I see the other day? Um, uh, and, and I, I don't remember the, the headline I saw the other day, but, but bottom line is that I increasingly think that we've already won that it doesn't oh, actually yeah. matter what happens from here and that regardless of whether cryptocurrency remains a thing or not, the competitive thing that it forced into the monetary conversation is having huge profound impacts. I remember what it was. It was the DTCC, the uh, Depository Trust. Oh gosh, I can't remember what it is, but it's a DTCC super wonk thing. If you trade stocks on Wall Street uh, and you buy a stock or sell a stock, you aren't actually buying or selling a stock, you're buying or selling a claim that is held at this organization called the DTCC. And the DTCC basically performs the work of a blockchain, right? Like people tell it, hey, transfer this- but with government equity. oversight. With government oversight. And it's a private company. It's a private yeah. company that provides this By type the of way, if, if all blockchains had some sort of DTCC, we'd have all of our regulations, no problem, easy. It would be all tokens. And that's the fundamental, like you said it right there, but it's not just stocks. It's any, almost any asset, real estate, central depository organization that kind of runs the ledger money. There are the, the banks. All they do is run the ledger. And at the end of the day, there's a piece of software that says what banks own what, you know, it's at 2 PM every day or at 11 PM. You see it with ACH direct deposit. It's just one ledger from another. All blockchain tried to solve was make that ledger more transparent, public, censorship resistant, and put it out there that everyone can watch it happen in real time. That's really, but like you said, there was no 
education about money, and especially when Bitcoin launched in the wake of that that crazy crisis, the Great Recession in 2008, there was a huge push towards regu- more regulations in for fi- for the financial world. And the crypto, I would say the early Bitcoiners were really the only group of people that pushed back and said, whoa, 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 you, your lack regulations are the ones that solve the problem in the first place. So now we're going to let you solve, you know, the problem that you caused in the beginning. No, Satoshi gave us this potential new concept and a new way to do money. And that's where Bitcoin was born. It was really that like revolution. And, and I just, before we get continue going into it, I want to give everyone a little bit of a background on yourself. You know, you started one of the first podcasts in the space, Let's Talk Bitcoin, which wasn't, I wouldn't even call it a podcast. It was more of like a, a, an, a salon, right? Is like those old, old salons where people get together. You ran it with uh, Dr. Stephanie Murphy and Andreas Antonopoulos. Uh, both went on to be like huge evangelists like yourself in the space. Uh, we've pro- Everyone has probably watched many of your videos, all three of your videos before and, and all tor- site, you know, um, types of speeches and things like that. But it was like a salon more. It was like the only adult conversations that were being had or being had on Let's Talk Bitcoin because and, you know, the larger LTB network and the other shows that kind of came with it, because really there was no everything else. Like you said, was on IRC and it was on uh, the Bitcoin talk forums. And that's kind of where what came through. And now you have launched an amazing uh, new company called 330 AI. And you're definitely now pioneering the the engines in the in the NFT world and and showing what could be made using kind of this. You're kind of like taking the same technology that Bitcoin did and using it to create very, very unique art. So I'm excited to talk about it. And then there's a lot of other stuff like going on in the macro world. You talked about an article and actually Bloomberg wrote an article the other day about how crypto Twitter really is like the de facto place where not only news breaks, but rumors and things like that. It affects all coins and markets and stuff like that. Twitter became the thing. It was Let's talk about that progression for a moment. Uh, you talked about IRC. Can that's so so that's that was my the first place I ever touched Bitcoin too was in the IRC chats. I found out about Bitcoin from another IRC network. I'm sad to say that half of my listeners probably don't know what IRC is. Can we just talk about that for a second and what? Yeah. And what, yeah. Uh, so for people who are uh, super nerds, uh, IRC <laughs> is this great chat room that has all sorts of federated characteristics and all kinds of freedoms associated with it. For people like me, it's actually pretty annoying. <laughs> so I was really happy when I moved off IRC, but I didn't move to Twitter. You know, you talked about our Bitcoin. D- uh, even well, so <laughs> there's a funny story behind our Bitcoin real quick, real quickly. So the first podcast that I started in the world of Bitcoin back when I was doing this pseudonymously was with uh, a 17 year old, uh, extremely libertarian kid named uh, who went by Atlas on the forums. Oh, and man, I remember you probably remember him. Atlas was he took on a lot of, of synonyms. I know he he. Yeah. Uh, so Atlas is actually the person who started the Bitcoin subreddit on Reddit. And then later, after it had started to get big, he, he used to love arguing with people, like having like oh, yeah. big libertarian philosophical arguments, right? And I remember one time he felt like he had uh, he had argued in bad faith or something, or he had made a bad faith argument, and he resigned from leading the uh, the R uh, Bitcoin subreddit and gave it to Thebos, who had also 
uh, run Bitcoin Talk. And that's actually how Bit- how uh, Thamos ran up, ran, blah, 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 wound up with a um, with a monopoly on a lot of kind of control over the platforms on which Bitcoin was discussed. And so that was kind of the situation early on was that there were places that you could talk about it, but they tended to be pretty hostile, frankly, to people who were new, to people who had questions. And I came into the space as somebody who's not a developer, who's not really even, wasn't really even much of a technologist at the time. I was just an enthusiast about computers. I'd come from the world of gaming and I had, uh, through the great financial crisis, uh, it's funny to call it that, um, you know, but through kind of 2008, 2009, I had become increasingly disillusioned with the way that the monetary system worked and just started to question all kinds of things about okay, we're the richest country in the world. You know, we have all these resources. We have an enormous military. We spend all this money and yet there are all these problems. Why is that, right? And so you'd go down that rabbit hole and if you go down the correct rabbit holes, you figure out that there are a lot of problems with the way that money works. Um, the Talking about the platform for a second. So, uh, and also uh, Jonathan Mohan came on as a, as a co-host um, later on, uh, about a year into it, uh, just, just to be clear, in addition to uh, Stephanie and, and, and Dre's. Oh, but, Jonathan Mohan's the man. Yeah, yeah also Jonathan on that Mohan is the day. man. Yeah, no, um, the, uh, so the, the part about it that was important to me and that's always important to me is I actually don't like to put my opinions out there because I don't know if I'm right. <laughs> and I don't, like, I know here's what I believe, right? And here's the way that I can support that belief with facts and with, you know, things that I observe in the world. But a lot of times I'm still wrong. And so what I'm always looking for is I'm looking for the most perspectives that I can find so that I can listen to everybody, see all the evidence that they bring to the table, and then add that to my mental calculus and come up with a worldview that's that much better. And it's that skill set of being able to look at things and be able to then connect the dots on that, taking a lot of information, connect the dots and figure out where kind of these technologies and what the implications are for them. It's really kind of the the thing that I've done really well. And so with Let's Talk Bitcoin, that's always what I set out for it to be. The other notable thing is that we didn't talk about the price. Everyone was so excited about the price. Even today, everyone is obviously still so excited about the price. And it's it's so damaging to the conversation if you make the conversation even just partly about the price, because the price has almost nothing to do with the philosophy. It has nothing to do with the implications. It's simply the market discovering, hey, is this thing valuable or is this thing going to be worthless, right? And then we oscillate between those two points and you get kind of this pricing thing. So I'm very proud of the role that uh, that I played and the platforms that I built. Uh, we started as a podcast in 2013. By the beginning of 2014, we had turned it into a podcast network and we're supporting about 15 other shows. Uh, we turned it into a publishing platform very early on also. We published the first works on uh, distributed autonomous corporations uh, from Stan Larimer, Daniel Larimer's father, who was the first one to publish on that. You know, we introduced tons of people to the Charles Hoskinsons of the world to kind of, you know, like all of the projects that were there early on. You know, we talked about, um, gosh, what was it? Even Ethereum. Uh, Yeah, I was going to say Ethereum, like what what was the precursor project to Ethereum? It was, there was some sort of mathematical proof that you did as the mining. Uh, I can't remember what it was called, but it was like, it was like PyCoin or something like that, where you were, oh, PrimeCoin, PrimeCoin. PrimeCoin, yes. Yeah. So this, this was Vitalik's uh, project before. Litecoin. They're all the, the first. But PrimeCoin was cool because the way that you would mine it was you were actually digging for prime numbers. And so the idea was, hey, we've got this proof of work. We're not really doing anything useful with it. It's basically just a money burning contest. What if it was a money burning contest to discover prime numbers? And that's kind of uh, that was the precursor project that um, uh, that Vitalik did immediately before Ethereum. And yeah, I mean, so, you know, like the the first two years, I would say from 2013 through 2015, like 
those were the years where Let's Talk Bitcoin and the Let's Talk Bitcoin network were really important. And we did tons of early stuff. We built many early tokenized systems. People don't appreciate this, but things like token control access, uh, you know, like having a token and it giving you access to something. Those are things that we built into Let's Talk Bitcoin network for like our forum system, for our content management system way back in 2014. So <laughs> there's a lot of rabbit holes to go down in this space. And if you get there early, you almost don't even need to be smart. You just need to like walk down the path. And every once in a while, like a new problem smacks you in the head, you know, like a like a limb across the path. Right. Or you trip over something. You're like, oh, I tripped over that. I guess I better build something that makes it so I don't trip over that anymore. And that's yeah, kind in, of, other in other industries, it's like there's almost a feeling, OK, if I find out about it, then someone else probably found out about it before me. So it's probably not a good deal or something. But in our industry, it still is very much so if you just spend a decent amount of time, you know, listening to the shows and reading and understanding research, you can start to connect your own dots and not there isn't any software or there's not enough Adams and Charlie's out there to connect the dots for other people. So therefore, you can connect your own and, and start to find different like connections and time. Time is, is, is your worst enemy, but it's also your best friend. You build experience and just by being around. Uh, a long time because the industry is not is not very big. Yeah, uh, totally. Um, you know, technology to me, like when we're talking about disruptive technologies, the whole reason they're interesting is because they change the balance of power and they change the sort of uh, ability of the incumbent to prevent competition. And so like I again, like I'd say that I was very much full time crypto for at least 10 years, you know, from 2012 through 2020. 22 beginning of this year. And then uh, since this year, I've really switched over beginning of this year. And actually, we started the project uh, mid last year, almost a year ago today, actually. Um, I've been working kind of in AI artwork. And I've been honestly shocked. I, I really wanted to do that for a couple of different reasons. One, because I was tired of trying to explain to people and having to educate over and over again about money. And there's so many conversations you need to have, like, to help people understand what's happening with money before they can appreciate why a better money is even desirable. It's an easier conversation to have today, but for a long time, it was pretty hard. Uh, but the other thing is that I was looking for something that moved a little slower <laughs> because the, you know, just again, like the pace of crypto, I've taken so few vacations, right? I've taken so few breaks yeah. and I'm constantly giving myself new projects. And so I was like, okay, I'll do something in art and that'll be a little bit more relaxed. And in practice, it's even worse. It's like three times as fast right now. We're just at the, you know, like the L bend of the curve right now or the J bend of the curve. It's ridiculous. You know, it's you. We, the world changes every five years. So the, the first five years of Bitcoin, 2000, you know, from taking Satoshi, 2010, 2015, 2015 to 2020 were crazy discovery years. 2020 onwards, we go. let's go back to the early part of our conversation where we mentioned the DTCC, the depository. We talked about these like centralized points and we talk about why a lot of us got in. We were either disenfranchised ourselves we come from disenfranchised countries where hyperinflation was rampant back 10 years ago, still is now, or we had been monetary theorists, libertarians, anarcho-capitalists, just Republicans, anyone who cares about, you know, who cared about freedoms and liberty and understood technology or cryptography back then could put all the pieces together. But what, what makes me a little sad, and I had this discussion with someone actually last night with my research team, was that I feel that it's moving back and our whole industry is moving back towards you know there's a lot of things back towards that like let the government or regulators handle the ledger part of the blockchain They'll, like let them oversee and be permissioned 
let them be able to freeze. And we need to now build our chains to, to, to do that. And I want to take a step back here. And I'm not an anarchist in any way. I just want to talk about that. 10 years ago, the idea was very, it was, it was conveyed and talked about constantly. Censorship resistant. We need to build tools in these blockchains that prevent any one single party from being able to have power or control over another party. That's a very, that was the basic concept. And that is changing. I feel like people care less. Bitcoin is proof of work and it's going to continue being its thing. But Bitcoin has been looked at negatively by regulators, by governments. Some, you know, El Salvador is great. Don't get me wrong. But behind the scenes, the SEC doesn't like Bitcoin. Governments don't like Bitcoin. They don't like, you know, they've taken, luckily Bitcoin's big enough. They can't like, you know, through the Barbara Streisand effect, they can't publicly say this, but they have publicly gone after things like Monero because it's not as big. And the, we have this big Ethereum merge. And Ethereum is so wonderful. It's the world's largest supercomputer. We're building amazing, amazing technologies on it right now that I talk about every single day on this freaking show, 300 episodes. Ethereum is now going to be proof of stake come September. To me, proof of stake is so much more centralized. I have these debates with our mutual friends who are the Ethereum co-founders. I know the, the backs and forth. I actively listen. I listen to their side. I repeat their and I and I say my side, but it's like, help me out here. What do you think? Yeah, there's a lot there. <laughs> I think that um, what you see as negative, I see as us winning. The reality of it is, is that if we hadn't won, then none of this would be, we wouldn't be having this conversation, right? Like Bitcoin wouldn't exist in the way that it does today. And governments wouldn't talk about it at all. And I mean, the fact that they do talk about it indicates that we've passed the point where the Streisand effect is so scary, right? And the Streisand effect, of course, is a, a apocryphal. Um, uh, someone took a picture of Barbara Streisand's house from a helicopter. Uh, then uh, they, and then uh, she filed a lawsuit she against. She was topless them. or something. Yeah. I, I don't think it was even that. But oh, but, really? Yeah. Yeah, I don't think I think it was literally just her house. It was like a pretty boring, not non-event <laughs> thing, right? But but you think that it's that, right? Because the Streisand effect is that if you're powerful and you go after somebody who's not very powerful about something they did that you don't like, chances are pretty good you're going to wind up alerting more people to the thing that they did than they would have gotten had you just ignored it, right? And that's a that's a thing that's very much in play. Every person you describe there, every group you describe there, are all people who lose when cryptocurrency displaces them from their positions of privilege and power. And it displaces them from their positions of privilege and power, not because it, not because Bitcoin is necessarily the thing that does it, like that's one scenario, but there are other scenarios too. But simply by providing competition, effectively what we're seeing is yeah. we're seeing that the, the narrative cannot hold. The narrative, if there is any sort of alternative, it doesn't make sense. Why would you pick a worse option when a better option is available? Why would you pick an option that you know is bad when there's an option that might be good or might be bad, right? Like the math is just so in our favor. And, you know, three years ago, if we were having this conversation, then I would largely agree with you. I would say that people are not likely to wake up in the short term because there's nothing forcing them to do so. You know, the people who were, um, 
who are involved with the early cryptocurrency scene and people who are who care about liberty or freedoms or you know rights in general are almost universally people who have had experiences that have led them to appreciate why those things are important right and so what did we just go through we just went through a global lockdown over a disease that again has a very low f- uh, fatality rate even as it is very scary and i think that again there are a lot of people who think that those were the right decision but sure. i think that there's a lot of people who think that those were the wrong decision and who felt for perhaps the first time in their lives that the government was taking something from them and was doing something to them that they didn't like and didn't agree with and they had no control over it. And I think that it's moments like that that truly create sort of the, the um, like the feedstock, right, for the types of people who we are. I mean, the reason why I care about this stuff is because I had experiences early on trying to manage, you know, some forest land that my uh, that my family owned and having all kinds of problems with it and then watching it burn because they wouldn't let us take care of it. What happened? I well, So I lived in California. I don't live in California any longer, but I lived out in the woods in California. Um, you know, and my family uh, has, you know, like very rural property with very steep forest, you know, and a lot of it that you can't actually do anything commercial with. Uh, because in California, they don't actually let you cut trees under most circumstances. And so again, California has these terrible fires every year. People say, oh, hey, this is climate change. It's not climate change. It's simply the rules that the California government has put in place. And also the fact that the federal government, which owns a significant portion of forest land around the country, does not manage that forest land. And then lightning strikes, forests, uh, those forests catch on fire. And then those forests become gi- gigantic, what are called confl- uh, conflagrations where multiple fires join together and then they're basically unstoppable and they till they burn through all the feedstock, right? The way you deal with this is you remove the feedstock, you harvest trees, turn them into lumber, turn them into products and stuff like that. We don't do that any longer in this country though because of environmental concerns. So instead we import the trees from China <laughs> and then our forests burn. So again, like it's those types of experiences that are often very personal to the person, you know, like I was wronged and I was wronged through a stupid rule that said that it was going to do this thing that was good, but actually it accomplished the opposite. Hey, maybe every idea that the government has and law that they pass isn't actually doing the thing that they say it is. And then once you start going down that rabbit hole, oh, there's a lot to find. That's really interesting about, about, uh, so anywhere you go around the world, because I was my friend owns land in South Africa, and I remember going to his his like five thousand acres and asking him why a section of it was burning. Because I'm from Brooklyn, I don't even know what a tree looks like. And he said, "Yeah, I have to burn my land. It's my responsibility. I have to burn areas to prevent my land from. If there was a fire, it wouldn't go to my neighbor's land, and the whole city wouldn't burn down. It's my responsibility." So I came to understand that it's if you own land. It's as it's your personal responsibility for everyone else around you to maintain that. You're saying that California basically banned that practice, but said, no, 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 the government's going to do it for you. But then the government doesn't actually do it. And that's why we have forest fires. Let me, let me go a little bit further. Like a hairy so person like it, me. <laughs> so it's, it's not why we have forest fires. It's why we have worse forest fires now than we used to. And it's why we have more forest fires and why it's such a problem, right? Anytime. So another thing to keep in mind. Okay. So this has been a problem for a long time, right? It takes 20 years for trees to grow up to the point where you get this type of density. And if you're not dealing with it in that time, then, hey, you have a problem. The, the government in California, of course, has been under pressure because, hey, the forests keep burning. This is a new thing. So on the one hand, they blame climate change. And on the other hand, they blame the power companies. 
The power companies have monopolies in California, and they're basically at the whim of the state. And so California sued the power companies, who then increased the charge, declared bankruptcy, and increased the power charges to all the people who, of course, use power. And now, so I no longer live in California, but my parents still do. And last year, they spent more than a month over the course of four months in the summer with no power, because the solution to the problem that the power company in the state came up with is that if it's windy, we'll just turn the power off any place where there's forecast to be significant winds that oh, yeah, might that. cause a tree to fall. So, I mean, like, you're li you, like, so it's just, it's so ridiculous. It's like, okay, government creates a problem and then the government doesn't want to take responsibility with it. So they blame somebody else for it. And then once they blame somebody else for it, then that person does a really stupid thing that then impacts the people who were the victims in the first place, which then the government further doubles down on. It's just, again, like, you and I, you and it's I enough have to make you libertarian. Friend. <laughs> you and I have a mutual friend who owned like a 40 apartment rental unit in San Francisco yes. when COVID came, said that all of his tenants didn't need to pay rent. Yes. However, him as the building owner needs to continue paying his mortgage. Of course, couldn't have paid. It's a ridiculous mortgage. He's one couldn't have paid the mortgage anymore. The, and the bank took his building, tries to sell it back to him for more money. But that's that's California for you. Guys, I am so excited to talk about our newest presenting sponsor, SafePal. SafePal is an all-in-one solution. You got a beautiful hardware wallet. You have this amazing fireproof cipher. You got a mobile wallet, an extension wallet similar to MetaMask. You're talking about an all-in-one solution for all of your crypto needs. Founded in 2018, SafePal is a Binance Labs-backed, Singapore-based company, uh, the venture arm, where their mission is to make crypto secure and simple for everyone. You got cross-chain swapping, trading services, and more. SafePal supports over 40 different blockchains. I mean, check this out. Look at this. If you back up your private seed in this beautiful metal SafePal backup here and you keep it in your safe, fires or water or nothing degrading over time, you should not be backing up your crypto on pieces of paper. I mean, look at this. Look at the S1 here. It's so cool. This is the hardware wallet. You're talking, I'm used to using the Trezor or the Ledger wallet, but SafePal is a lot better because not only do you get the hardware wallet and the backup cipher, but you also get the mobile wallet, the uh, extension on your Google Chrome or whatever Firefox you use. So it all works together. You don't have to worry about man in the middle attacks and everything like that. You can go to safepal.com, use the coupon code Charlie, and you'll get any of these amazing products the extension wallet is free, the mobile wallet is free, the hardware wallet and the backup are really, really well priced. It's all super safe and secure. And I love it. I mean, there's no other way you should be using your crypto than SafePal. I, I mean, it's, uh, again, like, it's not even just California. That, like, I was just going to say, that yeah, was my like, words. It's not yeah. even just yeah, the world. It's not Bank even just California. It's they the lend money out to countries. Oh, you, you wanted to get into that. I mean, the, you know, so anyways, getting back to the, the thing we were actually talking about here, it's experiences like these that make you libertarian or make you anarchist or make you any of these other sorts of, you know, things The the traditional, you know, like I don't even pay attention to the traditional political paradigm and I haven't for quite some time. I voted for Obama. I voted for Trump. I voted for lots of different people. And what I vote for is I vote for disruption. Do, you know, is the candidate somebody who is going to say, hey, you know, like the system is great. Let's just tweak it around the edges. That's not a candidate who's going to do anything that's going to solve any of the fundamental problems. A candidate who just doesn't 
get it right is better <laughs> than somebody who's in on it right because that that the only way that you keep dumb systems like this going this long is because so many people benefit from them that the game theory pushes it in favor of the game continuing rather than the game ending and we really need the game to again go through a reset real quickly back to the DTCC and why we've already won so the DTCC again super important company uh, you know that plays a really pivotal trusted role the, the headline I saw the other day is that they announced that they're now pushing between 100,000 and 160,000 transactions through the DTCC blockchain. And that they're actually more than a year into piloting, <laughs> um, basically obsoleting themselves so that somebody else doesn't obsolete them uh, while retaining their trusted role. And again, like this is a company that's so important that nobody has ever heard of unless you're very, very much in the weeds on this stuff. And again, the fact that they're reacting to it, the fact that every time the World Bank releases a, a quarterly report, right, about what are the biggest things that we're concerned about, up front they've got like stable coins, we're very concerned about stable coins, but the worst is Bitcoin. Don't trust Bitcoin, right? That's I mean, it's what just they like, do though, I see yeah. that all the time. But it's great, it's great. If we didn't matter, if we hadn't won, then they would ignore us. They would just say, here's the way it's gonna be. Obviously, this is the way it's gonna be. Instead, they spend half of their pages, and these are like 120, 160 page long documents, justifying and explaining why, even though it looks like there are some advantages to this decentralized trustless technology where you don't need us anymore, actually, we've done deep studies and determined that we're the best option. So just ignore it. Yeah. But the, these are like permission chains and everything, and they're of great. Course. I love, I love the idea of like a trucking logistics company starting to use a blockchain because then not only, you know, there's so many, there's so many. I mean, if you own a trust a trucking logistics company, you're not using a blockchain. Call me because there's so many good any 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 type of like where you using where you're spending a lot of money and time and and manpower supervising the computer softwares. Uh, for what it's like regulations or anything like that, you should be using an application specific permission chain, whereas no one else can join your chain. That's totally cool. But in these like more public chains, that's where I'm kind of talking about Bitcoin, Ethereum and all the others, Solana, uh, all the Cosmos ecosystem chains. And I'm a big fan of those Cosmos e ecosystem chains now because like all their SDKs, they built in the tools into the chain itself. And there's no one you can arrest like to because it's not like a tornado cash situation where someone's actively running it potentially but um how it's like more a question for myself too is like how do we preserve individual users like liberties when if these chains just become permission chains in the future because that's what's going to happen if all these if, if proof of work goes away I'm pretty convinced, actually, that that's not what's going to happen. And again, I could be totally wrong about this stuff. I'm very hopeful. I, I hope we're both wrong and it's like yeah. some in the middle. Yeah, no, it's uh, like I'm, I'm very hopeful about this. And to be clear, I don't think that this stuff will stay permission chains. Again, the, the world doesn't change overnight, yeah. right? Because competition emerges. It's an incremental process, right? And so what you see is first they're like, oh, yeah, no, just I mean, what? And then they're like, OK, fine, what? And then like, you know, you, you move on a little bit further past that and it's like, okay, I guess we'll, we'll pay a little bit of attention to this. And then it's like, okay, I, I guess we'll start using a little bit of the technology because there's some, there's some advantages, you know, on this particular part of it. And I mean, once that process starts, like if the, if the advantages aren't there or if you can monopolize things, 
then, hey, you know, you can see progress stop really quickly. One of the reasons why I got into Bitcoin in the, the very early days, I actually was um, doing disruptive journalism, I called it, um, on as mind to matter on three different topics. Bitcoin was one of them, but another one was 3D printing, additive manufacturing, and another one was uh, octocopters and drones and stuff like that. And the reason why I wound up alighting on Bitcoin was because uh, was because both drones and 3D printers wound up running into uh, intellectual property um, claims that basically wouldn't expire for another four or five years, that it stopped the progress in that space. And nothing like that took place in Bitcoin. There was no pre-existing technology that trumped what was being developed. And so you could move really, 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 really fast. So uh, the point just is, is that, again, the the idea of competition and the idea of alternatives That's are right. the only thing that really matter about this. Lacking those characteristics, none of this matters. And lacking the world around us, right? Lacking a world that is in the process of absolutely immolating all of the certainty and all of the stability to the extent that we've had it during our lives. Like it's, that's in the process of all being destroyed by this sort of monetary process that we're going through. And so it's really only in that world. It's only in the world where you see all of these trusted authorities, you know, abdicating on all of their trust and doing exactly the opposite yeah. of what they should be doing that something like Bitcoin is even interesting, much less important. But that is the world that we live in. And so again, in that world, I take all of these incremental signs very, very positively. Again, like we have changed the conversation at such a fundamental level that the most important muckety mucks with the best credentials in the world, right? Like they care about us and they're scared of us. They're scared of this technology. And they should be scared of this technology because it represents an existential threat to their power. And again, that's what this world is about. It's like what, yeah, so we've we've created, we basically got, you know, sub 2010, we got into this world where all existing businesses and technologies basically plateaued and we couldn't really like break that ceiling of what, that how do we, what, what disruptive technology is going to put every other business in the whole world on its heels. And that's what this was. I mean, Bitcoin did it for money, right? Like Bitcoin provided that alternative and money has a lot of challenges and it also has a lot of advantages though. Um, what we're seeing, what blockchains are, what, you know, my simple explanation for them is blockchains are a better way to track who owns what stuff on the internet. And so if you think about that, that's really, really valuable when you're talking about money, but it's also valuable when you're talking about almost anything, right? And a lot of my first use cases in the space, the things that I was really excited about uh, were about sort of reinventions of crowdfunding, uh, not around like the ICO model that we would eventually see, but you know, like around the Kickstarter model, where it's like, hey, I want to build this thing, and then by representing the thing that your you know your your support as a token makes it so that you could sell that token to somebody else, trade it to somebody else, give it to somebody else, you know, I mean, like, and it solves a bunch of problems because you you couldn't have. Uh, like when you fundraise a, for a project and somebody wants a refund, you know, six months in, it, you can't really give them the money because it can cause problems. But if there's a market where they can just go and sell the thing, hey, no problem whatsoever. So again, like the implications of this go far beyond money, but money is the most important part. And money is the also sort of the systemic thing, right? It's like Bitcoin won't matter in a real, you know, not outside of like a competitive uh, function um, until the current system gets reset. And it is inevitable that we'll, it will be reset. And lacking something like Bitcoin, the only option we'll have is a Bretton Woods 3 or, you know, some kind of crazy, you know, like the IMF issues strategic drawing rights. And then they use that in place of the U.S. dollar. People but if you realize have a, yeah. that we are definitely and it's it's a scary thought. We are definitely living in a lifetime where a Bretton Woods type of situation could happen again. And the the 
how money has been run and what how we understand money from 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 childhood until death could fundamentally change like the dollar and banks and and, and everything how we price things we could be living in a time because that happens once what was Bretton Woods but Bretton Woods was in the 70s early 70s after gold yeah. after Nixon what what happened there uh, so basically they, so I'm not a monetary historian. I have a basic understanding of this, but I'd have to dig into a book to give you a real explanation. The short version is, is that the dollar or rather the uh, gold to dollar peg kind of collapsed. And so Bretton Woods two was the introduction of, um, of a standard that was basically the gold exchange standard where under certain conditions, countries could even up with themselves. But, uh, but for people who weren't, but just for like normal people, it used to be that you could take a dollar and you could exchange it for the amount of gold or the amount of silver that it represented. And that stopped being true at that point because the countries had effectively issued so much money that they couldn't, that they were insolvent if they had to redeem everything in terms of gold. And so they went to this system that pretty quickly failed. And then also it involved um, basically taking the dollar and attaching it to, um, and attaching it to uh, effectively making it the exclusive mechanism by which you could purchase oil from uh, many Middle Eastern countries. And as a result of that, it kind of took this, this uh, system of hard value that had been on, uh, you know, like the dollar representing a certain amount of metal, and then that being the limiting factor on how much money you could issue to instead it was uh, attached to oil, which became an increasingly, increasingly important thing over time. It didn't last very long in a functional capacity. And in reality, it's been in the process of collapsing since it, like it was always a stall action, right? Yeah. Um, and like the stall action ran out maybe 10 years ago, 20 years ago, something like that. And ever since then, we've just had bubble after bubble after bubble, starting with the, um, you know, starting, I would say, with uh, uh, Alan Greenspan uh, starting the uh, oh, yeah. real estate bubble in, uh, right after the, the dot-com crash. So, I mean, you know, like the, the, the reality of it is, is what we're talking about is we don't know what the reset will look like, but we can pretty much guarantee that there's going to be a reset. And for me, the question about Bitcoin has always been, that has always been about the reset. People talk about it like it's an inflation hedge. It's not an inflation hedge. It's uncorrelated, or at least it was uncorrelated. But the thing that it really is, it's, it's a systemic disruption hedge. In the scenario where there's a systemic disruption, the value of dollars probably goes way, way down, uh, you know, after going way, way up as currency is destroyed and everybody and other non-US dollar currencies pile into it in hopes for safety. Um, you know, but then you get a reset and it's like, oh, hey, here's the new system. Dollar goes down and Bitcoin probably, again, by nature of its limited gold like characteristics goes up. And, hey, it might actually wind up as a reserve asset because it's a really good reserve asset. And it has all the advantages of gold without the disadvantages. And the Bitcoin is sufficiently distributed and held by enough adversarial parties that the world would agree on Bitcoin because it came out of it. I disagree with that. I think that the reason why the world aligns on something like Bitcoin has less to do with the distribution of it and more to do with the lack of power dynamics in it. So if you look at like the US system, right? Uh, like, you know, it has the global reserve currency. Yeah. Incredible privilege comes with that. Incredible ability to spend more money than you really should because everybody needs your money for their own accounting systems, right? So again, like imagine a reset. Okay, Russia and China are over there. They've got their own joint currency now that's their global reserve. And then you've got, you know, the Western allies over here. And then you've got every other country who isn't actually in one of those alliances who's saying, wait, I don't want either of you to have control over my money and be able to effectively, you know, spend more money on your behalf by diluting the value of my money. 
And so that's that's the scenario we'll be faced with. We'll be faced with which nation do you want to give this power to or would you rather nobody have the power? If you'd rather nobody have the power and you not have the power, but nobody else have it either. Hey, there's Bitcoin. That's called neutrality. And that's what that system really is about. And that's why it's such a compelling. That's why that's why El Salvador is important, not because of what they're doing, but because it represents the first instance where this mindset is is articulated, not directly, but articulated by action. Uh, by the head of a country. And that's great that this is it plays into exactly sort of the game theory that I think we're seeing, which is, you know, El Salvador is nominally on a US dollar standard. They don't benefit from that. That's not a good thing for them. And so again, to them, it's like, why wouldn't we take also the neutral currency? Yeah, what do you mean? So so El Salvador's own currency before they adopted Bitcoin was was pegged to the US dollar in some way? Well, so to be clear, they so so again, not a monetary historian. Yeah. I've done a little bit of research on this. So, uh, so El Salvador has a native currency called the Colon. Uh, I assumed early on that there must have, and in about 2000, it might have been the year after that, they basically switched so that their legal currency, in addition, was the U.S. dollar, and it was. And then they had like a, um, and they had like an exchange where like you had to to put it in. A lot of people have really bad memories of that because the exchange rate was not preferential to people. Um, so. Why they did that is actually something of a mystery because it was assumed by me, certainly, that they must have had bad problems with inflation or the money must have been mismanaged to make it seem like that was a good choice. As far as I can tell, nothing like that actually happened. They just did it. So when they introduced Bitcoin, they didn't say, and this is replacing the U.S. dollar. They just said, this is another option that you have alongside the U.S. dollar. And so, again, in that way, what's the downside? The downside is really politics because people are like, oh, Bitcoin, that's bad because of this or because of this or because of this. These are all bad faith arguments by people who don't actually understand or aren't willing to articulate the truth, which is that Bitcoin represents, you know, in a single piece of technology, what it takes the U.S. government, the Treasury Department, the Federal Reserve, the U.S. Army, you know, like all of the intelligence agencies, like this, this gigantic trillions and trillions and trillions of dollar infrastructure on an annual basis, not to mention all of the power that, you know, that is consumed by that, right? Like that's the real thing you're comparing against. You're not comparing this against, oh, hey, what does it cost for the Federal Reserve to crank a, you know, crank a wheel and print out some money? It's like, what's the system that supports this, right? Oh, like yeah. credit. Anyways, I, I'll... I'll Thank you for coming to my TED talk. I'll stop ranting about no, monetary policy. No, I love policy. it. I love it. But yeah. And but I I want to also I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about 330 AI as well. Yes. You know, you've you've been around a long time and I've uh I really enjoy seeing what my friends are doing and when you were showing me 330 AI it was so cool because you kind of took homages from is it homages? You took homage yeah. from homage. 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 That's why I shouldn't be a podcast. I can't. <laughs> you know, English is not my first hard. language. People got to cut me a break here. I learned English on my own. So what? With... IRC is your first language? No, a Hebrew. <laughs> I grew up with Hebrew gotcha. and Arabic in the house. And it's like, that's a whole nother world. But um, you took math to create unique art. And it allows individual people who uh, can't articulate creativity through the paintbrush or the pencil or whatever and allows them to do so and share it with their friends and family. Uh, did I articulate that? Okay. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, so yeah, switching gears for a second, I swear to God, uh, you know, like I, I spend so much of my time thinking about what the fed is doing and just like all of these different things that nobody should care about. Nobody should care about <laughs> any of this stuff. This stuff should be stuff that just happens in the background that nobody knows about. These are the least known people ever because they just do their job. But anyways, I digress on the art side of things. 
so like I mentioned before, I really look at technology as a way to kind of empower people, right? Again, it's all about competition. And it's all about people having options. And I firmly believe that when people have options that, you know, they pick the best one for them, given their situation, that they know what's best for them. There's a lot of stuff in the world today, increasingly so, that is outside of our control, which affects us deeply and profoundly, and which there's really little that we can do about. And so last spring, I guess, I found myself getting addicted to creating artwork using an AI bot in a Discord uh, on a research server called Eleuther. And I, you know, I was, uh, again, working for Coindesk at the time. And, uh, you know, I still, I still do a show for them, but I was working as a managing editor for them at the time. And, and I just found myself in every spare moment, you know, like I'd be editing a script and then I'd take a break from that for a second. I just go create three more, you know, three more uh, images. And the technology was terrible at the time compared to what we're talking about today. You know, like I type in like pop art of Vitalik Buterin, right? And you'd get like little pieces of Vitalik's face kind of peering through, you know, these, these sort of amorphous smoky blob type things. But it was enough that you'd be like, oh yeah, I see Vitalik in there. Like this is very Vitalik-y. And so, um, and so I just found that for all the things that were outside of my control, this was so much fun. And the act of creation was so much fun to just be able to say, hey, what about this? And then have it show up a couple of minutes later. So <laughs> that led me to start first incubating a project inside of my company Tokenly. And then we spun off earlier this year um, uh, called 330AI and building a platform called Pixelmind.ai. And Pixelmind basically takes all of these technologies which have pretty significant learning curves and puts them into a package where somebody who's brand new and has never used this stuff before can just come in, select a different, you know, we call them series, where it's like, here's something where someone who's really good with AI art has tuned it, and then you basically fill in a Mad Lib. And by filling in that Mad Lib, then you watch as your image is created. And Charlie, actually, since you and I talked last, two days ago, uh, I, we hit what I would call uh, 1.0 for uh, image synthesis or, or AI creativity. And I got to tell you, uh, I have to send you some images after this because it's really wild. But it now takes about four and a half seconds to generate uh, an image. And that image is amazing. Amazing. Oh, man, I can't wait to check it out. I've been doing, um, gosh, uh, it's going to be a copyright nightmare at some point. But I, I uh, as an experiment, was doing Jason Moma as Wonder Woman. And oh my God, it's so good. It's just like, again, like complete publicity shot, photo, ridiculousness. You know, I mean, just again, like, so, so, so when I say 1.0, here's what I mean. I mean, for a long time, for the last year that I've been working on this, the question has been, how good is the art that you can produce? And we've seen four technological shifts in that time, and they've all been okay. significant um, in just the last year. Like each one is like an exponential increase in quality and an increase, a significant increase in, uh, in, you know, like cost efficiency, stuff like that. But this latest one is just ridiculous. 30 times faster, 30 times cheaper excuse me, than um, the prior level of technology. And so, and also so good that you can say, hey, I want, you know, a golden retriever wearing a blue and white striped scarf, and it'll give you that, right? Um, and just understands you well enough that you don't need to try and, and like jam it in there. So when I say 1.0, what I mean is this, I mean, it's no longer about can you create amazing artwork? The answer is yes, you can create amazing artwork. The answer is no longer about, is it fast enough that you can put it into applications where you would never expect this to be? Yes, it's fast enough. And if you took that speed, if you took that four and a half seconds and you cut it down to two seconds, nobody's gonna care. Because even though it's 
you know, significantly faster, it's already fast enough at five seconds. And even if you improve the image quality 50%, nobody's going to care because it's already so good that you can't tell that it was created by AI. So this has huge implications and it has huge sort of disruptive characteristics. So I'm actually spending most of my time right now. We've got the consumer NFT focused platform where you can create, you know, within so like, it and then you can, yeah, go ahead. In another world, in another world, like instead of a video game being created by by video game developers that are sitting there for years and years, like a new Grand Theft Auto takes years and years. You got to sit. Every pixel needs to be to be colored and drawn and built. Not only that, but you're talking about it. It could be the unique individual, and 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 you know maybe it could take my NFTs or attributes of my identity and in almost in real time start to create unique art that it knows that I like and in the game or in. A, a relaxing world or in this studio or in my home, like all of our walls could be these LED screens that are our mood affects our moods and things like that. It's like this technology enabled us to happen. Wow. That, so that that's true today, but this goes even further than that. So there's, there's two examples here. Um, one example, in terms of what you're talking about, I very firmly believe that within two years, we are going to see games, probably indie games to start triple A's will come, you know, a year or two after that. Um, that are using AI technology to dynamically create not just art on walls, but in-game assets, 3D models, characters, right? And being able to effectively have it be that that, that, that basically what's happening is when you're creating characters in the future, you will create recipes for characters. And those recipes for characters will then be used and can be modified to then, uh, to then create entirely custom assets across everything. So you can imagine a game that's like, it's not even a game about anything. It's literally just game mechanics. And then you can turn on different modes for it that generate different types of art that use the mechanics in different ways. Again, like these are fundamentally, these are not tweaks around how games work. These are fundamental like game changes about how games get made and then also how they Everything. work and how personal they can be. I read somewhere when I was just doing a little bit more research that they're saying that folks that are in comas, they potentially could, you know, we're talking about real time all the time, but it could potentially, it could potentially use like their EKGs and whatever's going on inside that we don't understand to help develop the surroundings. It could help people get healthier and better because we know that when our bodies are stressed, not our mind, but when our physical bodies are stressed, we get sicker because we can't fight back as hard. And so like the really the fundamental, it's just groundbreaking type of situation you don't read about this on the internet you read about the price like you said the conversation it's like we should title this episode like moving beyond the price or something like that because that's, that's where i've always been yes yeah we need to just <laughs> do editors and you're listening that's the title moving beyond the price hey dude i really appreciate you coming on the show today taking an hour with me uh chatting i hope we can do it again soon and uh and catch up i want to start to do longer longer form episodes and break them up into pieces so that could be really cool but thanks thanks for coming on the show today yeah thank you very much charlie uh we definitely could go at least another hour and probably a lot longer than that i think um, i'm gonna get messages from the listeners you should have let him go <laughs> well uh you know you know me i'm i'm always uh i'm always really really happy to talk about all of this stuff and i'm especially happy to talk about it again talking about um 
talking about, you know, like the crypto side, I'm especially happy because I'm so convinced that we're winning (laughs) and winning again, not about even like crypto going to any price or whatever, simply about changing things, about offering better options and about making it such that the people who really control the most important parts of our world can't just do what they want without explaining why it's the best choice and having some type of reasonable debate about that. Um, one other thing, I apologize for going on a little bit longer, but, um, so the other thing just about the AI artwork stuff is that because of how fast this is, there's like right now, everything is about images, but that's going to change really, really quick. And it's going to be about music and it's going to be about movies really soon. And again, on the one side, that means that you'll see movies that are created in the same sort of way. On the other side, it means that the method by which we create these types of things is going to fundamentally change as well. So when I was first, again, addicted to this thing last spring, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I had this kind of vision uh, where I was like uh, seeing a friend of mine, BT, uh, who's a musician, uh, like standing on stage and rather than performing, you know, speaking into a microphone and describing sort of this, uh, this soundscape, right, with natural elements and stuff like that, just with his voice. And then that being encoded in real time into inputs that are then fed into these AIs. And then the AI has been trained on 30 seconds of a movie, right? Predicting next 30 seconds of a movie, predicting next 30 seconds of a a soundscape, right? And you can have this almost real time performative creation that can involve one person or multiple people. But again, like fundamentally different, completely different way of creating than we've ever had before. And that's just one of, uh, you know, hundreds of implications that will come out of this. So that's kind of where I'm super obsessed right now, really just thinking about that stuff and have some secret projects in the works on that. Uh, if you want to, if your listeners want to uh, check out uh, what we're doing, though, they can go to beta.pixelmind.ai and um, I'll set up a coupon code right now. It's 25 bucks per month if you want to get in and create. Uh, but we'll set up a, one called, call it Charlie. And yeah, uh, yeah, 50 per, and we'll do 50% off with that. Thank you so much. Yeah. I really appreciate you letting me talk about this stuff for as much as I like talking about all of these things. I'm not great at self-promotion. So I appreciate the reminder. (laughs) I'll talk to you. We'll put it in the show notes too. We'll have links to it. I'll talk to you soon. Charlie, it was great talking to you. We'll talk soon.